And just personally, I'm so glad to have gotten to know you better over the last, over the last like two years, three years. So, okay, Mark, please go ahead. Thank you very much, and uh, <clears throat> well, wonderful to uh, see all your faces and to uh, uh, be uh, in in a sense together with you again. Uh, I'll start by giving a short update on uh, my life and work, and then I'll dive in uh, to the topic. Uh, this has been an extremely busy and demanding year for me. Uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, I was spared the ordeals of travel, and you would think that would um, slow life down a bit. But uh, in fact, it kind of uh, only uh, increased the pace for me. Uh, and uh, some of that comes from the fact that, uh, you know, I've been involved for the last two or three years in forming a new organization, um, which uh, is called uh, Yachad B'Yeshua. Uh, and uh, this is an ecumenical uh, fellowship uh, of Jewish believers in Yeshua that brings together uh, Messianic Jews and Jewish Catholics and Jewish Protestants and Jews in the Orthodox Church. And uh, uh, it is an ambitious uh, project. Uh, and uh, really it's, uh, it's swallowed up a lot of my life over the last period of time. And uh, uh, I think that's appropriate. I think it's what I'm supposed to be doing, but it's, uh, it's also, uh, been uh, somewhat uh, challenging for me. Um, I'm uh, also, uh, we're moving forward with the uh, mess the new uh, incarnation of the Messianic Jewish Roman Catholic Dialogue, which is no longer called the Messianic Jewish Roman Catholic Dialogue. It's now a, a joint study group of Messianic Jews um, and, uh, and Roman Catholics who are focusing on a common issue, uh, which is of the, the significance of Jewish believers in Yeshua um, within the body of the Messiah um, as an issue that's an internal issue for Catholics as well as an external issue in terms of relating to, uh, to Messianic Jews. And uh, we're, um, we, will, uh, we were supposed to have our first meeting in Rome uh, last year. Uh, and of course, we had to um, uh, we had to postpone that because of COVID, and then we rescheduled it for this past summer, and then we had to reschedule that because of COVID. Uh, but um, we are planning to meet in two weeks, uh, and uh, I have my tickets, um, and I'm uh, God willing, um, I will be flying uh, to uh, uh, to Rome. In, uh, in a week or so uh, time. And uh, Fritzi talked about uh, Judith, uh, Judith Wolf and her family coming and being able to be in Vienna for a while. Well, she's uh, uh, using, she's gonna be participating in this group in Rome uh, now. And uh, so her, uh, she was able to take advantage of that to first go to Vienna and then uh, from Vienna uh, to Rome. So uh, uh, I would uh, very much appreciate your prayers for um, this first meeting of this new group, which will be um, within the Catholic sphere, uh, overseen by an archbishop who um, is really uh, dealing with this, these issues for the first time 
Uh, and uh, in, in some ways, the most important thing is that he receive a spirit of revelation about the significance um, uh, of, uh, of Messianic Judaism and of Jewish believers in Jesus as, as a whole for the life of the church. Um, the, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, again, uh, that's I think a, a significant uh, meeting in, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, Fritzi also referred to a theological symposium that we're putting together for the University of Vienna, uh, which will be next summer. And uh, I've been very involved in that process as well. It's primarily a European event, I'm, uh, but uh, I was lassoed into it uh, uh, just as a, as a Messianic Jewish theologian. Um, and uh, this is an attempt to have an impact on the academic world, the Christian academic world in Europe, um, uh, and to open it up to the significance of Messianic Jews. Um, so I think this is another uh, significant development. So um, just a final point on the personal front related to all of this. Um, uh, this year is an important year in my own life, um, really for uh, two different reasons. One is kind of uh, uh, spiritually nostalgic. This is the uh, 50th anniversary of my uh, coming to faith in Yeshua um, when I was 19 years old uh, in uh, 1971. Uh, and, uh, the, but um, what uh, the other uh, significant thing is then in, in the coming spring of 72, I'll be turning, uh, excuse me, of 2022, I'll be turning 70. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm just reflecting on where my life is at and uh, I'm going to need to be um, reassessing a lot of the things I'm doing uh, because I'm just realizing that I am actually getting older uh, and my capacities uh, are, um, are changing <laughs> and uh, I'm needing to, um, to adjust to uh, this new phase of life and uh, so appreciate your uh, prayers for wisdom um, as uh, I enter into this next phase, which I anticipate really is, in a sense, the last really active phase of my own uh, life of, uh, in, in service. Um, and, uh, you know, if I could, I, I would, uh, you know, God willing, I will be as uh, fruitful um, as Father Peter and have my 70s as a time when I'm still able to travel and write and 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 uh, and serve um, and uh, you know that would be uh, again my uh, my prayer. Okay, well, uh, I was asked to speak uh, about this uh, about love, and uh, what I'm what I decided to do is. Uh, I want to first uh, offer uh, a biblical teaching about uh, the Torah's teaching about, about love, and particularly about God's love. Um, and I, wa I want to speak about God's holy love. And then uh, I want to shift a bit into talking about our what that means for us and how we live that out in our relationships with one another. And uh, in, that, uh, in that part of uh, what I uh, have to say, 
I'll primarily be reflecting on history and personal experience. Um, so uh, this will be a two-part uh, two teaching. So, uh, and uh, for uh, some of this uh, part, I will share my screen. I, I have the biblical texts um, on my computer. So I, I believe, uh, and you've set it up so that uh, we can, we can sh uh, share uh, uh, where I can share my screen. So uh, it's, it's I will, yeah. So I'll, I will uh, I will do that in, in a couple of minutes. So uh, I want to uh, focus about the, the foundational revelation of God to Israel, which is of course associated with Sinai. Uh, but when, when we think about Sinai and God's revelation to Israel at Sinai, we, we think about one event. We think about Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 uh, and the, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments uh, and, and, and uh, the, co the covenant code that follows from that, uh, Exodus 19 through 24. But uh, that's only part of the Revelation Sinai. In fact, uh, what I see in the Torah is a threefold revelation at Sinai. And I want uh, to first just summarize the first and the second revelation of God at Sinai, uh, and then focus on the third uh, re revelation of God at Sinai. Um, the first revelation of God at Sinai is in actually in, in Exodus 3, when, uh, when God appears to Moshe in the burning bush. We sometimes forget that that revelation is at Sinai. Uh, and uh, that's a, it's significant um, that that's the, the, the location. Um, and this is, of course, not just the revelation of God, but it's the revelation of the divine name, where, uh, where the divine name is unfolded bef uh, to Moshe. And of course, the divine name expresses something of the, the divine character, the divine nature, the, the who, ha, who God is. And when, when Mo Moses appears, uh, comes uh, to the burning bush, what uh, he's told by the Malach Hashem, the angel of the Lord, uh, to that this is holy ground. And uh, that's the first appearance of the word uh, holy, kadosh, um, since the second chapter of Genesis, uh, in, in, in which spoke about Shabbat as holy. So the word holy, it just uh, kind of disappears after Genesis 2. And uh, this is now in, in, a, in, in, in the revelation of the holy God to the descendants of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and when God appears, uh, when Adonai appears to, uh, to Moshe and says, take off your shoes, this is, uh, this is holy ground. He also says that uh, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And he, in explaining the significance of the divine name, he, he says, you know, I will, I will be who I will be, but another way of understanding this is I will be with 
you. And uh, that, that, uh, that is largely of what Hashem says to, uh, to Moshe. But it's all, of course, in the context of charging Moshe to go and redeem Israel. That God is now coming to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises mean that, uh, that Israel will be able to enter into its inheritance in the land. But in order to do that, they need to be delivered from bondage in Egypt. And so the first revelation of the holy God uh, the, and the holy name of God at Sinai is a revelation of a God who redeems. And uh, I, what I think is especially significant in an Exodus 13 passage for us is the way, um, the way Hashem uh, Adonai speaks about his relationship with Israel. He says, I have heard their cry. I have seen their bondage. I know what they're going through. I know their affliction. And it's what without use of the word love, what we're seeing here is the God who is with his people, who hears his people, who sees his people, who knows, who understands what's going on, uh, going on with them and co is coming to redeem them. So the first revelation of, of God at Sinai is the revelation of the God who redeems. And then the second revelation of, of God at Sinai is uh, Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. Uh, and uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments begin with, in some ways, the summary of that first revelation. I am the, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I am, uh, I, I am Adonai. I am the one who has redeemed who has redeemed you. Now, most Christians relate to that as the prologue to the Ten Commandments, um, which is a reasonable way of understanding what's going on there. Uh, in Jewish tradition, though, it's actually related to as the first commandment. It's it's uh, it it actually it's understood as an implicit commandment that Israel would uh, would believe would trust would uh, give their, their loyalty to this, to this God. Um, but uh, regardless, the fundamental reality of the second revelation of God is at Sinai is he is the God who commands. What we find at, in the second man, revelation of God at Sinai is the God who redeems is also the God who commands who is asking Israel to become something, to live in a certain way, to manifest something about who God is. And then what I really wanna focus on is the third revelation of God at Sinai. I think this, in, this is the, the revelation of God at Sinai, which I think is uh, underappreciated. Um, its significance, is simply not really grasped adequately um, by Christians. And I'm speaking now about the revelation to Moses at Sinai after the sin of the golden calf. Uh, now, uh, 
you know, in, in many ways, there's a pattern here, the pattern of what's going on in the giving of the Torah and Israel's sin with the sin of the golden calf is, uh, follows the same pattern as Genesis one through three with the, the giving of the Torah and the revelation of, uh, of Adonai to Israel as in the first two uh, manifestations of God as being equivalent like to the, the creation of, of Adam and Chava and they're being set within, within the garden and then being given a charge. And then the sin of the golden calf is really like the fall, you know? Uh, and and in, in Jewish uh, Midrashic tradition, interpretive tradition, that's actually, it's actually treated that way, that there's a Midrash that says when, um, when Israel received the Torah, it received eternal life. It became immortal. Uh, and that when it sinned with the sin of the golden calf, it, it lost its immortality. Uh, and that's basically simply to map on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to uh, what's happening in, in Exodus. I mention this in part because uh, some of you may know this uh, Christian tradition of the happy fall, the, the Felix culpa, you know, that it there, uh, and um, the, this idea that in some sense, the, um, there was something about the fall that opened up a new dimension of God's uh, overwhelming love for the world um, and in the incarnation. Um, I think that given the fact that that, in, that original fall had already happened, um, in some sense, Israel's fall in the sin of the golden calf is the real Felix culpa because the world had already been broken. Israel had inherited that reality. And what happens with the sin of the golden calf is it opens up an opportunity for God to reveal something about himself, which is absolutely essential for human beings to enter into relationship with him. Something about who he is, that he is not only the God who redeems, and the God who commands, but the God who forgives and the God who restores that which is broken. Uh, and so now I'm gonna share my screen and I just want us to look through uh, Exodus 32, 33 and 34. And I wanna focus on this idea of God as the holy, as the one who, who shows holy love for Israel. It's, it's an overwhelming love, but it's, it's never that love is never separated from God's holiness. The two are always bound together. So uh, now, okay. Are you able to read this? Is it large enough on your screen? I wonder, let me just, uh, in the, Perhaps. There we go. Okay. So I'm just going to read through this and comment on it as I'm going. Uh, on the next day, 
Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to Adonai. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Adonai and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. Uh, and of course, uh, this, in, this is in the context of God's, you know, saying to Moses, Moses um, look, um, why don't we just get rid of, of this troublesome people and uh, we can start over again with you. And in effect, Moses is saying is, if you, um, if you don't have them, you don't have me. Um, and this is, a, this is exactly what God wants to hear from Moses. All, in a sense, all of this is in part a test for Moses too, of uh, how is Moses going to deal with this situation? Um, he knows the holiness of God. He's standing between the people and God. Um, he could, he's obviously very upset with them, with his own people. But at the same time, he becomes their intercessor, standing before God on their behalf and basically unwilling to bend, unwilling to, uh, to give up on, on, on Israel. Uh, but Adonai said to Moshe, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. Then Adonai sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So again, we see here that God relents. He is not going to destroy Israel, but he still judges. He's, he is still holy. He is not uh, the, the holy God who loves is, is still a God who purifies. Uh, and uh, being God's love does not dispense with truth. It doesn't dispense with requirements. Uh, but it is always looking to restore, to heal, to, to make new. And then in the next chapter, Adonai said to Moses, go leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> Notice there, this is that, that um, dynamic uh, of um, Moses and God that's very similar uh, to that dynamic of parents, you know, where your son has done such and such, um, you know, and uh, here, um, instead of it being a God who led it, brought Israel out of Egypt, it's, it's Moses who brought, uh, brought Israel out of Egypt. Um, and uh, they're both trying to cast responsibility onto the other. Um, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the peoples. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So this is not God being kind of ornery uh, and irritated and, uh, and just saying, I don't want to put up with you. This is actually an, an expression here of God's love for Israel. He's saying, 
I am a holy God. If I dwell in your midst, you, you're a sinful people. And what that means is uh, it's going to mean suffering for you. It's going to mean hardship for you. It's going to mean judgment for, for you. And I'm not sure you're up for this as a people. Uh, and Moses' response is, I think, very significant. When the people heard these harsh words, not just Moses's, but the people's, excuse me, response. When the people heard these harsh words, they mourned and no one put on ornaments. For Adonai said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you are a stick-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do to you. Therefore, the Israelites stripped off their, their, their stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb on. So here we have God saying, okay, I'm not going to destroy you as a people. That was the initial threat. Um, and then now he says, not only will I not destroy you, I am going to give you the land that I promised. To. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I'm going to bring you into the, in, in, into the land. Uh, and, uh, you know, but uh, really, I can't dwell in your midst the way I originally intended, because, because that's going to be even more difficult for you, and you can't handle it. And Moses, basically, his response is, um, that's not going to work either. Moses said to Adonai, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. And so Moshe is not, he is not saying, um, he realizes that this is going to be difficult for Israel, that God dwelling in the midst of Israel isn't all blessing because the one who's dwelling in their midst is the holy God. And so it's going to bring extra hardships for Israel. But what Moses says is, look, this is the whole purpose uh, of redeeming us and of calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the first place. And Really, if you're not going to go with us, then what's the point of it all? And I think, again, this is something enormously pleasing to God. It's, it's Moses, Moses saying, look, um, yeah, I, this is going to be painful for us. This is going to be costly, really costly for us to have you in our midst. Uh, but this is why we exist. Uh, it's to manifest your presence and your holy love, your purifying love in the midst of, of the earth. And this is something that brings enormous pleasure to God. And, and what Mo Moses in the midst of all of this sense says, show me who you are, oh God, show me your ways. Um, 
to confirm th this, your, your promise. Adonai said to Moshe, I will do the very thing that you have asked for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And this is really setting things up for the third revelation of, of the God of Israel at Sinai. And, and uh, again, I think this is, well, it's hard to rank the revelations of God, but in a sense, this is the consummation. This is a, a climax. This is absolutely essential. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name Adonai. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Uh, Moses asked to see God's glory. And what God says is, I will, I will make you to see my goodness. And, and as the one who shows grace and mercy. Uh, yeah, he is the one who also purifies. He's the holy God. But in that purification, and even in the midst of God's judgment on Israel, he is the God of grace, of mercy, and of goodness. Uh, now, one of the reasons, by the way, and this is now a slight uh, digression, um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about all of this, I was asked to speak about the love of God, or excuse me, about love. Well, one of the um, concerns I sometimes have is, is simply with the word love. You know, it is so, um, it's so overused and has so many different meanings. And at times it, it becomes almost something like trite, you know, um, that loses its meaning. When we see it in the context of both what God does and how God acts in relationship to his people, it takes on new meaning. But also what we have here uh, in the Torah is a multitude of words, different terms that get used that are all unfolding in rich language, the significance of God's love, of what God's love means. And we get here God's goodness, God's grace, and God's mercy. But then this leads up to the, the actual revelation to Moses on Sinai. But God said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And Adonai continued, see, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then we get the actual revelation. Adonai descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Adonai. Adonai passed before him and proclaimed Adonai, Adonai, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is, uh, this is a revelation in Jewish tradition. It's called the 13 attributes of God. 
Now, I, I'm the way you get 13 here, it's a typical kind of rabbinic uh, exegesis. It's not worth going into how they do it. Um, in some ways, the number 13 is simply a symbolic number here. But uh, it's interesting, you know, in the Christian world, the number 13 is a kind of unlucky number. In Jewish tradition, it's a very lucky number. It's the, it's the number that represents God's loving character. The, thir the 13 attributes of God. And th this text is enshrined in Jewish life and Jewish liturgy. Um, and it's, uh, it is um, a text that has become central to Israel's, when Israel prays to God for forgiveness, what it does is it, it repeats this back to God. It says, God, this is who you revealed yourself to be. Uh, and so it's fundamental to Jewish liturgy. And this is following the actual pattern of the Torah itself. Because um, what we find is that the next great, at the next great sin of Israel, which is the, uh, the incident of the spies, when the spies uh, tell the, the, the people of Israel, you know, uh, you should be afraid of going into the land and they dissuade the people from going. And this is a, 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 a terrific sin. Again, God, there's a threat of God's destroying the people, it's so bad. And Moses has to, in effect, repeat the same kind of intercession that he had in, in Exodus um, uh, 32, 33, and 34. This is in uh, Numbers 14. But Moses said to Adonai, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for in your, in your might you brought up this people from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Adonai, are in the midst of this people, for you, Adonai, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people all at one time, then the nations who have heard about you will say, it's because Adonai was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. And now, therefore, let the power of Adonai be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, Adonai is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, <laughs> excuse me, etc. You see Moses repeating back to God the revelation that God has given to Israel at Sinai of his character. Uh, and this language will, will appear basically in other places throughout the Psalms. Uh, you know, a, a classic illustration you can think about um, is Psalm 103, uh, one of the most beautiful of all of the Psalms about God's mercy. But basically what it's calling, Psalm 103 is calling us back to remember this third revelation of God's holy love at, at Sinai. Adonai is merciful, excuse me, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Adonai is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is, we hear this repeated over and over and over again in, in, the, in the scriptures. I mean, we, um, uh, there, there was a reference earlier on in our prayer time to Jonah, 
It appears in Jonah too. Jonah complains to God after uh, the people of Nineveh repent. And he says, you know, um, the reason I'm angry with you is because I knew that you were a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that you would forgive the people of Nineveh when they repented and I didn't want you to forgive them. You know, and so this revelation of who God is is so it's very, very fundamental uh, and 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 really critical for us uh, to under understand. Um, uh, this is it is and these terms, I want to just say something brief about some of, of about the the language here. Uh, you know, the the notion of God being compassionate. You know, this is rachamim, God is rachum, el rachum. And uh, this comes from the Hebrew word for, uh, for womb and uh, speaks of God's, God's ability to be moved by the needs of his people. That when God sees his people, he is like a mother who is looking upon her own child. And he is moved by by the need of, of his own people. And God is gracious, chanun, uh, or the noun chen, grace. This is God's generosity, the response of someone who has resources and who has power when looking upon someone who's lacking resources and lacking power. A superior dealing, re relating to an inferior and looking and saying, um, being disposed to, to give, you know, so it's, it's associated with the notion of gift giving. And then slow to anger, erich apaying, long suffering. Uh, it is, uh, it means God is patient. God is not irritable. God is not someone who just gets upset and, 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 uh, you know, and, in some ways uh, reacts. When God judges, it is a decision that God is making and it's itself coming as an act of love. Uh, and God puts up with a lot more from us, you know, uh, then uh, it's not like every time we do something wrong, God is simply immediately doing something to uh, make us feel how, how awful it is. Um, you know, uh, we deserve a lot worse than we get. And then I think that uh, the, perhaps the most important terms here um, is uh, the term chesed, which uh, in, in this translation is translated steadfast love. It could be translated, I think, covenant love and emet or faithfulness or truthfulness, truth. Uh, and these two words, these two go together, chesed ve'emet. Uh, they together reflect God's loyal, faithful, reliable, trustworthy commitment. When God enters into a relationship, God can, can be counted on. You know, this, um, in, in a sense, the two words come together and, and form one concept of God's uh, utter reliable truthful character um, and his love which is like rock solid 
you know, but that what, but sometimes that love also gets expressed in terms of purification because it's a holy, holy love. Now, the final biblical text I wanted to look at before I just shift gears a little bit is just one text from the New Testament. I could have spent a lot more time on the New Testament, but this is, of course, a crucial New Testament text that shows how everything we've spoken about gets captured and restated and renewed and consummated in the coming of Yeshua. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen, and that could also be saying, you know, the word became flesh and, and ma made his tent among us, you know, took up his dwelling among us. It's the same kind of language as like the, the reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness. So immediately we're getting the images of, of, of Moses and Sinai and the Exodus. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. We have seen his glory. Moses asked to see the glory of God. What God shows him is his goodness. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The Torah indeed was given through Moshe. Grace and truth came through Yeshua, the Messiah. Um, many biblical scholars think that the way grace and truth are being used here in uh, John 1 are uh, to correspond to the chesed and emet um, in, in uh, the Torah. So this is not saying, contrasting Yeshua with the Torah and Moshe. It's saying that the chesed and the emet that was already revealed in the Torah now comes to its consummation, it comes to completion, it comes to perfection in the incarnation of, of, the, of the word, the living Torah in our midst. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart. Excuse me, no one has ever seen God. Here's the reference of, again, back to uh, Exodus 33 and 34. Um, God saying, you can't, no one can see me, you'll see my back, Moses. Uh, no one has ever seen God, but it's God, the only son who lives in the very heart of God, who makes God's face known. And that is the face of, uh, of the, 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 the one revealed at Sinai who redeems, who commands, and who forgives. Now I want to... Um, stop sharing my screen and I can uh, look again at you all. Okay, uh, now I wanna talk in the light of all of this about our, uh, our love our love for one another. Um, you know, it may, might seem a little odd to spend all that time talking about God's love for us, um, but really I don't think we, we can talk adequately about what it means for us as disciples of Yeshua um, to, to love one another unless we, we're, we're rooted in this fundamental understanding of God's love for us because our love for one another is simply the outworking of God's, God's love for us. Um, we could look at Moses' love for Israel as, in a sense, an expression of God's love, uh, God's love for Israel. And uh, the, the, Moses becomes a model here 
that is realized in Yeshua, Yeshua's love for Israel, which gets, play, gets played out again in the life of Paul and Paul's love for his, for his people. Well, uh, in, the, in Jewish tradition, the first temple was destroyed because of Israel's idolatry. You might say it's because Israel lost its vision of God as holy. In Jewish tradition, the second temple is destroyed because of, of what um, the, the, the sages call um, a, a hatred without a cause. And in fact, when we look even at a, a book like Josephus and, and his descriptions of the Jewish war in, 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 in 70, um, what he describes are is Jews uh, all at one another's throats. And Jews are killing one another in, in the city of Jerusalem, within the walls of Jerusalem, uh, before the Romans ever breached the walls. Uh, there's, there's a kind of civil war that goes on in the midst of Israel that uh, is part of the reason for the judgment of God and part of the, uh, the manifestation of, of God's judgment. And the response of Israel to Yeshua himself, I would argue, and I won't go into detail on all of this now, I, I could say a lot more about it. Um, I see as itself a reflection of Israel's uh, inadequate living out of this commandment of love, of love for one another. Uh, you might say that the first temple in, in this scheme in rabbinic tradition comes for failing to fulfill the first table of the, of the law and the, uh, the, the second temple is destroyed because of a failure to, uh, to fulfill the second table of the law. And some of the reasons that Israel fails to, to live out and, and fulfill the second table of the law in the, is because it, it was so, it learned the lessons too well from the first destruction of the temple. It was, it understood that God was holy and it needed to avoid idolatry at all costs. But then everyone was so convinced that they understood exactly what was true and what was holy and what was right, that they could sit in judgment on one another and basically go on the war path against one another and cut one another off. You know, uh, it is the bringing together of the two tables of the Torah. It's bringing together God's holiness and God's love, that God's holiness is a loving holiness. God's love is a holy love. You, you can't have the one without the other. The two belong, uh, belong together. Uh, and uh, I see the same kind of pattern working out in modern society in the church and in the Jewish people. You know, um, I know of, uh, you, you got one segment of Christians who are committed to the holiness of God and making sure that everything is done right and that God's character is not compromised. And at this, and then the tendency is to violate 
the, the, the loving character of God. And then you've got other, uh, others who are, have a clear sense of the importance of, uh, of caring for the needy and the poor and, uh, and, uh, and, and the, the preeminence of love. And then at the same time, there's a loss sometimes of the sense of God's holiness. Uh, and uh, in the midst of all of this, I think we're called to, uh, to take a different uh, posture uh, and to learn about God's holy love and to, to learn to embody it and share it in, in, and live it out in relationship with one another. And it's very, very, very difficult. Uh, I can say this from um, my own personal experience from a, a lifetime of trying to do this and, and failing in various, uh, in various ways. Um, uh, and I think about um, my own early experience living in community life. I shared with you uh, uh, a couple of years ago about uh, living in community for about 20 years. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it was actually during that time when I um, visited the, uh, the Bruderhof for the first time. So I'm actually very eager to hear Claire share. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, the com community is a beautiful thing. Uh, but what I, um, what I experienced, there's something very human about forming parties, you know, of, of having, um, finding people who are, who have a, a like, who are like-minded in seeing certain things. And then different parties emerge within a community, at least in the communities that, that I was, the community I was part of. And, um, very soon there's a sense of um, we, we see what's really going on, but the other guys aren't quite seeing it, you know? Now, uh, some of it is just human. I, I don't think we can quite get out around it. Uh, we have to, some of that we have to accept. But what I, what I learned from my experience there was that I couldn't trust that, <laughs> that I, that, when we form those kinds of parties, um, we tend to insulate ourselves um, and create um, a kind of reality distortion field. Uh, and we only see part of what's going on. And, um, and, and one of the reasons for the need of, for all of the parties to be at the table is because in, in, it's almost always the case that the other, the other folks are seeing something that you're not seeing, just like you're seeing something that they're not seeing. Uh, and in, you know, in rabbinic tradition, this was expressed through these two, um, the two uh, schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, uh, who were continually disagreeing about everything. So this idea of parties is, you know, it's, right there in, in, in classic and Jewish tradition. But basically the, what the rabbinic tradition said about this was really remarkable. It basically said that the words of the school of Hillel and the words of the school of Shammai, of Shammai were both the words of God. And it said that 
the halakha, the rulings about the Torah were supposed to go according to the school of Hillel. But, but what Shammai was saying is also the word of God and needed to be preserved and needed to be heard and taken account of for every generation to come. Uh, and so, you know, there comes a time in, in a community where you make decisions and one party basically may become the dominant party. But um, within a community that's learning to love, there's the sense that um, there's still the kind of humility of realizing, well, uh, there's still something that we're not seeing and we need to be able to hear the other. Um, and, uh, and so the sense again of the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who knows um, when he comes to redeem Israel. This is like fundamental also for us to recognize and, and to attempt in our relationships with one another. We'll never succeed perfectly. Again, we will form parties even within a community where there's not supposed to be any parties. Um, you know, we will form little groups and in that context, we will be able to see certain realities and not see other realities. And, uh, and in the midst of all of that, we will develop convictions about who God is and what he requires. And I think what God calls us to do is to be true to those convictions. It's not a matter of kind of saying, oh, well, none of us are seeing the truth. And so we really should be very wishy-washy about everything. No, there's something that God has given our, us and our circle to see. And we need to be true to that. And we need to bring it forward and to state it as clearly as we can. Um, and at the same time, same time, realize that there are gaps, that there is something missing inevitably. There's something we are not seeing. We may see more than the others are seeing. And it may be, it may be the case that, that our, our view should carry the day, should, uh, but it's still the case. You can count on the fact that there's something that you're missing and that the other ones are seeing. And um, it's inevitable. I, I, uh, I didn't think that when I was you know, 20 or 30 years ago. I thought we were, my, my circle were seeing, was seeing it all right and they were seeing it all wrong. And now I look back and say, no, it wasn't that way at all. I was deceived. Not deceived in, I still think that the group I was with was seeing some very important things and I, at the same time, I believe I was deceived in thinking we saw the whole picture and that the other guys were just missing the boat. They weren't missing the boat. They were seeing something very important too. And our failure, because in, in my community experience, it led to a split. Our failure was a failure of love, a failure of being able to listen to one another and to show God's chesed, to show the, 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 the chesed the emet, to, to hang, to, to, to do what Moses basically did with Israel, you know, instead of like going off and, and allowing God to start off anew with him, you know, um, and becoming a kind of sectarian, you know, uh, Moses' view was, no, 
Israel in all of its weakness, in all of its frailty, in all of its sin, this is the people that God has chosen. Uh, and that's my people. Uh, and uh, I'll just share one other example before maybe opening things up a little bit more from my own experience. I could go on and, and share a lot, give a lot more examples, but I've been talking for a long time. And uh, I, I, I want to, um, to open things up a bit. And this is more, a bit more recent. Uh, after moving uh, out of that community, charismatic community experience, um, entering into the Messianic Jewish movement, uh, I uh, soon basically became aligned with another set of Messianic Jewish leaders. And again, in a, in a, in a sense, we became a little circle, a little party. Um, and we, we were seeing some things that other leaders in the Messianic Jewish world didn't see. And I think we were. Uh, I, uh, but uh, at the same time that there was a temptation and the temptation was to, um, to, to have contempt for the others, to look down on the others, to be um, a kind of elite, you know, to see ourselves as we're the ones who, who are understanding it. We are, uh, and the others, they are not, uh, they're just, they're missing it. Um, and uh, fortunately, I think it was only, it was after a couple of years of this where I, I looked back on my previous community experience and I caught myself and I said, no, I'm not going to fall into this again in the same way I did before. And so um, I really worked hard <laughs> to, to battle against the, those things in me um, where I was tempted to, um, yeah, just tempted to write off, to, to, to cut off uh, all of the others in the Messianic Jewish movement uh, and kind of create a new movement around me and my friends. It's a kind of, again, like the Moses temptation, you know, God will build a new community, a new Israel around Moses. Well, uh, and uh, I just realized that was a temptation and, 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 uh, and fought against it. And, um, and I must say, I'm one of the pe people who was very helpful for me in all of this was Father Peter. Um, Father Peter was amazing because he was, um, he, he could have been an elitist, you know, uh, because of how well educated he was and, and how deep he was as uh, in both theologically um, and in his understanding of, uh, of, uh, of many, many different things. Uh, and yet uh, his, what he chose to be a scholar of was Pentecostalism, uh, this movement that uh, was um, in most of its history um, really uh, a movement that provoked contempt. Um, and, uh, and Father Peter had this capacity to deal and to appreciate what God was doing in the midst of all kinds of people. Uh, and uh, in a way that was more difficult for me. And uh, Father Peter helped me, uh, helped me with this. And uh, I continue to remember him 
uh, in uh, as an example for me in this regard. Um, and I'm going to um, uh, I'm going to prove myself a liar and give one 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 last example from the very from the last year. Uh, you know, uh, I think we've all experienced examples of close relationships with people that have been tested uh, over these uh, the political and uh, all of the different issues. I mean, the one that was raised already was the the vaccination, non-vaccination. Um, you know, uh, but there are there are, there have been so many of these issues in the United States, and I talked about some of them uh, in my, our last uh, sessions uh, together. Um, uh, but we recently, in our family, I just we had an experience. My wife had a very close friend. Has a very close friend. My wife was a, is a retired nurse and um, this other, um, her friend was also a nurse at the hospital. Her friend is a very uh, devout uh, evangelical Christian. And, uh, you know, they discovered in the last year that they were um, on the opposite sides of the, uh, the culture wars in the United States. And so they decided to have one conversation where they would talk about those things. And, um, you know, my wife just thought, oh, you know, we love one another. We can, we can try to over, we can try to get past those things. And maybe, maybe my friend will, will be able to understand things better if I explain them in a different way. Maybe I'll understand what she's saying. Uh, um, they had a, a phone conversation and it was disastrous, you know? Uh, it was, it, they're living in two different realities, you know, uh, and uh, they, and, and so for a period of time, there was no communication between the two. Um, and uh, just about um, a month ago, uh, my, my wife's mother lives with us. She's 98 years old. And uh, she, she's at the stage of her life where if she moves takes a, um, uh, uh, moves in a particular way, she breaks a bone, you know? And uh, so she had broken some, uh, some bones in her back and needed a procedure done at the hospital. And it was on the day before Yom Kippur. And uh, my wife is a cantor and she was going to be chanting the Kol Nidre service, the, the, this beautiful um, liturgical service um, on the, e, the beginning of Yom Kippur. And so, um, you know, she was very concerned that she was not going to be able to be with her mom just after this procedure. And so she called her friend and because she knew that her friend loved her, her mom and that Raz's mom loved her friend. And so she just called on her and asked her if she would, if she would um, be with her mom during this time so that um, uh, Ross could, uh, could chant the Kol Nidre. And um, she immediately said, of course I will, you know? And she, um, she came over, she was with uh, Ross's mom and she was with us for a period of time that night uh, after services and we talked with her and it was wonderful. And there's a sense of, um, of simply caring for one another, of actually coming to one another's aid, of practically 
loving one another. You know, that was what bypassed it. It wasn't uh, the, the, all of the political differences and the cultural differences. The fundamental reality was we are going to help one another. We're, we are going to serve one another. We are going to care for one another. Um, and, uh, and that really opened a door for, um, for my wife and her friend again. And I, I think um, that's uh, the kind of chesed ve'emet, the kind of holy love um, that, uh, that God is asking for us from us in, in these really, really difficult times. So uh, enough of Mark Kinzer. Um, let's um, open things up and take this wherever you want to take it, Anne.